Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Welcome to yet another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, where we chronicle some of the most fascinating people on earth. I am very tired, ladies and gentlemen. I've returned from Washington, D.C., and I just feel weary. But I'm excited. I'm excited to be presenting this interview. I have a real love for talking to lyricists. I look at it like this. Lyricists are creative with words. They're able to express themselves with words. But to write a song, you have to express yourself lyrically with a limited number of words. When you give a lyricist an open forum, when you interview them and you let them speak freely, expressing themselves is very easy. That is why I think some of my favorite people to talk to are lyricists. I like talking to songwriters in general, but lyricists tend to be very interesting. Alan and Marilyn Bergman have been enriching the Great American Songbook for more than five decades, and I would say that they are probably two of the most important song lyricists in the entire world. I know those are big words, but in this interview, they joined me to talk about their very storied life in music. Alan and Marilyn Bergman wrote songs with some of the greatest composers, Michelle Legrand, Johnny Mandel, David Shire, Sergio Mendez, Dave Grusin, John Williams, Marvin Hamlish, many others. The songs of Alan and Marilyn Bergman have been sung by the likes of Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Gladys Knight, Johnny Mathis, Vic Damone, Tony Bennett, Michael Jackson, Fred Astaire, you could just keep on going. Hundreds and hundreds of singers have sung Alan and Marilyn Bergman songs. You could say the words of Alan and Marilyn Bergman are here to stay. Just to tell you about a couple of the songs that they've written, one of my favorite Frank Sinatra songs, which I have many, would be Nice and Easy. Words written by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Then, of course, Barbara Streisand, The Way We Were. You get the point. This interview was recorded over the telephone. It was originally broadcast on the radio show. It's my pleasure and honor to present the interview with Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome one of the world's great songwriting teams. <laughs> it's a great pleasure to welcome Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Most stories are best from the beginning. Before you knew each other, what was life like growing up? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. We both grew up in Brooklyn. And we had very similar... Uh, very similar upbringings. Yeah. Lower middle class families, both with mothers who were determined that their kids would be exposed to culture. So, at that time, there were a lot of free things going on in New York. The Philharmonic, for example, had free children's concerts every Saturday morning at Carnegie Hall. And unbeknownst and to each other, our mothers took us there. We were there at the same time. Yeah. Many rows apart. <laughs> and years. <laughs> so, so, that was terrific. And we both went to rather progressive schools, chosen carefully. 
Uh, it's amazing how yeah. similar uh, our backgrounds were. Schools also that encouraged reading and writing and, you know, open classrooms, that kind of thing. Do you ever wonder if you met before you officially met? Well, I don't think we met, but we were certainly in the same place at the same time. Yeah. What about early music loves? What did you all listen to? Well, there were two uh, in that class. First of all, uh, the classical music, because, you know, every Saturday morning we had the Philharmonic. And, and there were was... music appreciation classes in the schools in those days, which, uh, you know, at least we got to hear and learn the language of classical music when we were very young. And then there was that marvelous music that came from the Broadway stage, written by the great songwriters of those days, the Gershwins, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, and and we grew up on on them. We would we would sneak in the, in the second act of all those shows. We didn't, didn't have enough money, so we, we would wait. Uh, oddly enough, we both did this, unbeknownst to each other. We'd stand outside and go in on the second act with the crowd, and if there wasn't a seat, we'd stand. We saw a lot of second acts. There's a poetic justice about this, because now we see a lot of first acts. <laughs> and this is it. We shouldn't be saying this, but there are a lot of we walk out of. <laughs> well, there's a symmetry there. <laughs> well, you mentioned a name there, Cole Porter. So what lyricists have influenced you the most? Uh, well, I had one of the great lyricists as a mentor, Johnny Mercer. And wow. he, yes, he spent quite a bit of time with me, encouraging me, uh, disciplining me, uh, and teaching me, really. I would not be here talking to you without him. Thank you, Johnny Mercer. Yeah, thank you, Johnny Mercer. And then, of course, all those I, I previously mentioned. We're still learning. We learn from Stephen Sondheim all the time. <laughs> what was Johnny Mercer like as a person? Oh, he was wonderful. He was a complicated Yes, very complicated, but... He came from uh, from Georgia. Yeah, not far from where you are. Savannah, Georgia. That's right. Uh, Savannah, yeah. But, you know, it's hard for me because I loved him and he uh, he was so good to me. And Marilyn, too, had a mentor from the lyrical ranks. Very good lyric writer named Bob Russell, who was really a, a pop song lyric writer. Uh, he did a few films, but mainly he wrote songs. He wrote Don't Get Around Much Anymore with Ellington and, and Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me. He wrote Brazil. He wrote he wrote a lot of very good songs. I used to play the piano for him. after That was my after-school job because he was a lyric writer who, who didn't play the piano. And there were no CDs in those olden days we're talking about. No tape recording. You know, well, there was real-to-real tape, but that was very cumbersome. So if there was somebody who would play the piano and play these songs, these melodies, over and over for him as he worked. That's what I did. He told me later, when I came out to California, where he had moved from New York in my college years during those years, he moved out here, and I came out here at one point because my parents had moved here. I said, what am I going to do in this place? I don't know anybody, and I don't know what to do. And he said, write songs. I said. I mean, write songs. He said, well, you learned more than you did those years that you were playing for me. So he introduced me to a young composer. And the first song we wrote was recorded by Peggy Lee. And then he introduced me to Alan, with whom he was working in the afternoon. 
he would work with me in the morning and then he would go work with Alan in the afternoon. And he introduced us and three of us started to work together and one of the first fruits that ripened was so-called nice and easy for Frank Sinatra and I think that kind of made us think well maybe this is serious and we can make a real career out of it. <laughs> well what was your first impression of Alan Bergman? Oh my dear. <laughs> well actually before I even met him the first time I saw him he was walking on the there was one street in Hollywood Selma a street called Selma, near Argyle, where all the music publishers had offices. And I saw him walking on the street there one day, and he was wearing, in my memory, a dark overcoat, and he was carrying a briefcase. And he didn't look like anybody else in Los Angeles. <laughs> I thought it looked like he looked like he just got off the train from someplace back east. And I thought he looked like either an accountant or a door-to-door salesman. I mean, matter of fact, he was a daughter of sale, but he was going to the publisher's office and trying to sell his song. But that was actually the first time I saw him. But the first time I met him, I really don't remember other than the fact that we started writing that very first day, the three of us, with this composer who introduced us, whose name was Lou Spence. And we started writing, and there was a, a common language and communication and we wrote a terrible song that day but but we realized that there was a collaboration possible there that might be interesting so we continued working together the three of us every day we would meet at about 10 o'clock in the morning and we would work until 5 30 or 6 o'clock so after the better part of a year i think we got to know each other very well in those hours every day and then we got a call from Frank Lesser, another great writer whose work I think influenced us greatly as well. He had already written Guys and Dolls and uh, with Charlie and a couple of other wonderful things. And he had a publishing company and he had writers under contract. And he called us uh, and asked us if we would come to New York and consider going with the, in, into this stable of writers. It was during that trip to New York that we had really probably what was our first date. Right, Alan? Yeah. Yeah. It was near Christmas time, and we walked a lot on Park Avenue. <laughs> in the snow. I think it happens at the, in that trip to New York. We never signed the contract with Frank Lesser for reasons that are not important, but we later signed a contract with each other, a marriage contract, yes. This question is for Alan Bergman. What was your first impression of Marilyn Bergman? Well, I remember walking up. We went to work in her house. My parents' house. Her, her parents' house. <laughs> and she was waiting at the door. There was a kind of a long walkway to the door, and I saw her. And as I got closer and closer, I knew that this was a very special, remarkable woman. And that's... <laughs> all, that of this, like, all of all this? All of this from walking yes. up the walkway? Yes, I well. yes. <laughs> <laughs> But there it was. I, I knew there was something special about her. When the two of you are writing a song, what is that process like? Well, that's like pitching and catching. One is very verbal. We... Uh, prefer to have the music first. It goes back and forth, pitching and catching, like one is the... Pitcher and one is the catcher. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one is the creator, one is the editor, and that goes back and forth within seconds. And when we get four, four or so bars finished that we like, I sing them. 
course, it's very important. Now, the lyrics, most important function of a lyric is to sing. And so I sing along with the, with the tape. And he sings very well. <laughs> As we progress, we hear it and and sing it and, and continue writing. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. <laughs> and, then, and then the rewriting comes in because, you know, things like songs, like anything else, are not written, they're rewritten over and over. Keep trying to make it better. Earlier you mentioned the song Nice and Easy. Yeah. Tell us about that song. Frank Sinatra was making an LP, an album in those days, of lightly swinging love songs. And he wanted to, uh, he, his manager uh, sent out a call. And I'm sure every songwriter within <laughs> a very far or near distance uh, wrote a song trying to get the, the title song for that for that LP. And, and, you know, when you write for somebody like Sinatra, that he's a piece of really theater, you uh, try and write a, a custom-made suit for him. So we came up with this idea of Nice and Easy which we thought would fit him, and he did too. Of all the songs that I'm sure were written, Oz was chosen. Tell us about putting the lyrics to the windmills of your mind. Well, Nice and Easy was, I believe, in 1960 or 61. And a few years after that, Alan and I continued writing together, and by now we were writing with other composers as well as Lou Spence. We were introduced to... Michelle Legrand, who came over to do some PR, I think, on uh, the Umbrellas of Ship. No, the Young Girls of Young Girls of Rochefort, which she had just finished. It was the second musical after, it was the musical after Umbrellas. Yes. Somebody introduced us to Michelle, and that, we've, that was really a marriage made in heaven. I have to back up a little bit, if I may. One day, Quincy Jones called us and asked us if we would write a song with him for a picture called In the Heat of the Night. That was Norman Jewison's film, and he wanted a title song, which was to be sent by Ray Charles. Well, I mean, that was a heaven assignment. So as a result of that, not only did we write the song, but... Our relationship with Norman Jewison uh, was uh, born. And so on his next film, or one of his next films, he called us and asked us if we would write some songs for the film with... The Thomas Crown Affair. Yes, with Michelle, who he wanted to do the score for the film. And one of the sequences of that film, now I'm finally getting to answer your question, <laughs> one of the sequences of that film was a, a glider. A sequence, it, it, Steve McQueen was flying a glider. He had just finished masterminding a, a very complicated bank robbery. There were a lot of problems. And he went up in this glider to think it out, I think. And Norman said that he wanted a song in this silent sequence. When we saw it, it was long and there was nothing but perhaps the sound of a little wind. He said he wanted a song that would just underline this whatever mind trip was happening to the character. So, I don't know, Michelle wrote about seven or eight wonderful melodies, one different from the next, and we all chose this one, which was an unlikely melody we thought it would be something more agitated. Whatever, we chose this melody. I don't know where this lyric came from. I really don't. It might have been... Alan thinks it had something to do with the circular movement of the glider. 
I, and uh, with anxiety. Yeah, the restless thing. I don't know, but I think my take on it somewhere in my brain was the feeling of going under anesthesia. There was a kind of, I don't know, circular disconnect of thoughts. It's very hard to explain because I don't think either of us really know where that song came from. Well, but we're except, grateful for it. Yes, except that we did have, you know, the, the, as the scene as Marilyn described, and also the intention of Norman Drews and the director to, to tell us that he wanted us to underline the anxiety of, of the character. Probably one of your most celebrated songs is The Way We Were. What was the inspiration behind that lyric? Well, you know that sometimes uh, <laughs> the stars are right. You know, you have a great, great movie, a fantastic director who understands music and song, uh, Sidney Pollack, a marvelous composer, Marvin Hamlish, and the, the singer, the best singer in the world, Barbara Streisand, to write for. So that's a lot of good things. And a title. And a title, which is this. This, yeah. this and The Heat of the Night were the only time we got to write titles songs yeah. where the titles really were valuable to us. Provocative uh, for a lyric. Right. The Way We Were was the title of Arthur Lawrence's book, book on which he based the screenplay. And it was a wonderful title. And as Alan said, we got to write for, yes, the best singer in the world. Now, you know, and Sydney's knowing the power of a song and music, the song, the function of the song, the first time you hear it, is a corridor back into time, taking you back to when they were in college. And that's the first time you hear it. The second time you hear it, which is most important, is at the end of the movie where the two characters meet. They haven't seen each other in years. They meet by accident. They meet by accident. And you hear the last half of the song, which brings you back to their life. So in both cases, it's taking you back into time, the way we were. On that note, the new album from Barbara Streisand. Yes. <laughs> what did you think of the album featuring your lyrics, the album entitled What Matters Most that Barbara Streisand recorded? Oh, please. <laughs> well, aside from the fact that it's such an honor to have her honor us with, with this album. I, we find it very difficult to be objective about her because, yes, as you heard, we do think that she she's extraordinarily talented as an actor and as a singer and as a director. And it all comes into play when you listen to her sing. And as lyric writers, there's nothing that she doesn't uncover in a song. She and she finds layers that maybe we didn't even know were there sometimes. And th that dramatic ability she has, that intelligence, coupled with this glorious voice, I don't know. It's um, And you um, know, she's recorded about 64 songs of ours, and it's a thrill, a, a privilege. Every time. Every time. Every time. So many people have recorded your songs. Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, Tony Bennett, Fred Astaire, Ray Charles, Barbara Streisand. Is it possible, could you pick a favorite interpretation of one of your lyrics? 
God, that's very difficult. When you say Fred Astaire, I think of that face. When you say Ray Charles, I think of In the Heat of the Night. When you say Tony Bennett, I think of how he keeps the music playing. When you mention Rosemary Clooney, I think of Where Do You Start? And Barbara, I, I think of 64 songs. <laughs> you know? And we've been graced. And that list I made me catch my breath for a moment. I never thought of it quite that way. But how lucky can you get? Yeah. It's quite amazing. It is, isn't it? Could you pick a favorite composer that you've worked with? Oh, that's just as difficult. We've really had the, the pleasure, but to write the melodies of not Michelle Legrand, not only Michelle Legrand, but Dave Grusin, Marvin, Marvin Hamlish, Johnny Mandel, John Williams, Henry Mancini. <laughs> there are so many. That's as stunning a list as the list of singers. Yeah. What is Marvin Hamlish like to work with? <laughs> a joy. He's absolutely a joy. A joy. He's quick-witted. He's quick-thinking. He's quick-sonic. He's in so enthusiastic. And he's so talented. Yeah. He's so talented. And he can execute at the piano. All of these names that Ellen just mentioned, they're all able to execute immediately at the piano what they hear, which is remarkable. The ability to not only to hear it and to think of it, but to express it immediately so that we're turned on immediately. Sometimes not immediately. No. I should take that away. No, there are, we feel there are words on the tips of those notes, and we have to find them. That's our exploration. Could you pick a lyric that is the most meaningful to you? Oh, meaningful. Meaningful. Well, the most meaningful lyric at this moment, it might have been different had you asked me the question a year ago or a year from now, but at this moment, I think what matters most is probably, it speaks to, I think, what we believe and what we really feel about relationships and about loving. It's with a beautiful piece of music by Dave Grusin, who's a wonderful composer and a great pianist and a great friend. And that lyric, and I listened to it a lot lately because of Barbara's remarkable record, I think says says for us what it's almost as if somebody else wrote it and it's speaking for us, but I, I feel deeply about that at this moment. What makes a good song a good song? Well, I think the combination of a, a unique melody and an original lyric. You know, we always say to each other when we finish something and we don't we don't have an immediate feeling about it, what the world does not need is just another song. There are millions of songs, and unless you have something to say, it's like anything that you write. What is it that you have to say that's either not been said before or not been said before in this particular way? So I think a good song, first of all, there's a, what now is a dirty word, but we lean on it very heavily, and that's craft. Alan said earlier that the, the one of the first obligations of a song is to sing, to be able to sing. That's what makes songs different from poetry, for example. I mean, lyrics have to sing on the notes that they're married to and feel good to a singer. Not only that, but that really determines, to a great extent, the writing of a lyric. 
But the idea, what is it that you're saying? And can you say it perhaps in a way that's not been said quite that way? That's a funny answer to your question, isn't it? I think that was very well put. This is a question for both of you. What is the best thing about being Alan Bergman? What is the best thing about being Marilyn Bergman? Well, I mean, we have an extraordinary life together. We love what we do. Real passion about writing. You do it with somebody you love and have a one, in addition, have a wonderful family of a daughter and a granddaughter. What could be better? <laughs> it's extraordinary. For my last question, what would you like to say to anyone who is listening to this? After you asked me the question about something about what lyric, I don't remember how you phrased it, and I said what matters most. I think this is chaotic time all over the world. It's like all the pieces have been thrown up in the air and they're there because it was, they were, was broken. It is broken. And I think we're trying to find a way to put pieces together in a better way and to heal the world. Occasionally, somebody writes a song that says something about that. I would love to write that song. We haven't. I think there's maybe a song that could contribute to a little healing. But first you have to break it up, and that's that's what's happening now, and I think that's healthy. We have to look forward to putting the pieces back together again. And hope for peace. Thank you very much. I have greatly enjoyed. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure talking to yes, you. Thank you for calling. Thank you very much, and a good day to you. Thank you, and to you and your listeners. Bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.